I wanted to say a word of thanks to um, several folks, to uh, Steve Welsh, to Keith West, to Stanley John, and to Brian Rowe for the last four weeks of sermons that they have delivered through the book of Philippians. They were phenomenal, a blessing to me as I was able to sit under the teaching of the word uh, and just be refreshed and have a little bit of a sabbatical uh, from the pulpit. Um, but if I were to be real honest, by the second or third week, I was starting to kind of itch a little bit. And uh, not because their sermons were bad, just because it's just part of, I think, how God's wired me, and I enjoy teaching the Word. And so um, I'm happy to be back with you this morning. Um, And in the same vein that we started with them, since they all read a whole chapter of the Bible to you, I guess i got to read a whole chapter of the Bible to you as well. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 19 this morning for Vision Sunday, as we remind ourselves of what the vision is that God has given us as as a local church in the context of this community. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 19. And we're going to pick up in verse 8 and read down through verse 31. So I'm not going to read the entire chapter to you. Uh, But before that, uh, in Acts chapter uh, 19, beginning in verses 1 to 7, Paul shows up in the city of Ephesus. And when he does, he meets several believers, disciples, they're called in Acts chapter 19. And he asks them if they'd received the Holy Spirit. And they say, listen, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. No one ever told us. And he said, well, whose baptism were you baptized with? And they said, the baptism of John. In other words, repentance of sin. Trusting in one who would, who would come. And so Paul then begins to explain to them this one who came, Jesus, baptizes them in his name, lay hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And then following that, we pick up in verse 8 of Acts chapter 19. This will be on the screen for you as we read together. It says, And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, in whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they were they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, because word travels fast when somebody gets beat up and stripped of all their clothes by a demon. This is both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of all of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Some of your translations might say drachmas. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and mightily prevail. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Acacia and to go to Jerusalem saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. 
And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly." See, almost four years ago, in December of 2016, Redeemer Church moved from south of Royce City on a retreat center property called Sabine Creek Ranch here into the heart of a rapidly growing community uh, in fate, into Highview Learning Center. Right? We signed a lease contract with them in October. They opened November. We moved in in December. And since then, we've been here operating and we moved as well with the vision of being a catalyst for the creation of kingdom culture in Rockwall County and beyond through the planting of local autonomous churches. So in the vision that we've been operating with for these last so almost four years, be a catalyst for the creation of kingdom culture here in this place that we call home and across the globe by raising up people and sending them out to plant local churches that would plant local churches that would plant local churches in their communities. 
And listen, if we are going to be the kind of church that serves as a catalyst for that kind of kingdom culture, one in which God is, we are, our knees bend to Him, His rule and reign and authority are acknowledged in our lives. He is supreme above all and beyond all, and there is no one who competes with Him. If that's the kind of culture that we're going to create, then it's got to be a gospel-centered culture. And let me tell you why. Because only through the gospel are we able to create culture. Because the gospel creates culture, let me tell you how, through conversions. The gospel creates culture through conversions. Now listen, this story in Acts chapter 19 has been fascinating me for a long time. Particularly the end of it. Where there's this massive riot that breaks out in the city of Ephesus, a city of uh, a, a mega city of its day, kind of the, one of the New Yorks or Tokyos of its day in the ancient world. In verses 23 to 41, we find this incident that's been recorded. And Paul, listen, he's been in Ephesus for some time now. If you go back in the text, you find that he's been there for at least two years, probably a little bit longer than two years in the city. And one of the things that is, that's interesting about the city of Ephesus and the, the place this riot took place is that Ephesus was home to the temple of Artemis. Now Artemis was one of the, the, the temple itself was one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. It had 127 mar- marble-hewn pillars that supported this massive marble-hewn roof under which the patrons would come and worship the goddess Artemis. These columns were inlaid with gold and rare gems. The temple's canopy was massive in its structure. It had an area of 425 feet in length and 200 feet in width. Right? If you think about it this way, the average major league field's 400 feet from home plate to the center field wall. Maybe a little bit further. And so you're talking about a, a structure that would span from home plate into the stand of your average major league baseball stadium. And 200 feet in width. And it housed the image of Artemis. Now Artemis, I didn't put a picture up here this morning because I don't know how appropriate it would be for some of us in the room. But Artemis um, was this multi-breasted deity. Okay, and headdresses, and actually they believe that Artemis, the the goddess that she was worshipped, began to be worshipped in Ephesus because this meteorite fell from the sky. And and, and when a meteorite fell from the sky, it was a goddess coming down. And so it had all these these points on it, which I guess turned into the multi-thing. And so... So, so Artemis is there in, in, in the temple. The stone's there in the temple. People would come and worship Artemis there at the temple. The, the word Artemis, uh, they, they gave her the name Artemis. Uh, one of the Greek historians, Strabo, he lived from 63 B.C. to 23 A.D. He wrote that the goddess received her name because she made people Artemis. In other words, that is safe, that is sound, that is secure. She protected them. She preserved the people who worshipped her. She became associated with health and all kinds of help in various forms. So she provided security for the people, safety for the people, and she had lordship over all the supernatural powers. So she was kind of like the head honcho of all the other deities there in the province of Asia. She was a perceived source of blessing for the people in Ephesus. Now listen, any, you, you know this to be true, any time there is a people who have a perceived source of well-being, a source of blessing, somebody's going to figure out a way to make money off of that. 
And these people had in Ephesus, the craftsmen, the silversmiths, right? They began to craft these images, these idols of Artemis to, so that people could take home and they could put it on their altar, they could put it on their mantle. So when family worship time, family devotionals, they could all sit around and they could worship Artemis there in their homes. So they made these small statues of silver and they began to sell them to people. And Demetrius was likely the head of the silversmith's guild or like Think of the union. Some of you are like, I don't like him already. Okay, But listen, he's the head of the guild. And so he brought together all the other silversmiths and the other craftsmen. who, And we're told that Demetrius brought in no little business. In other words, this dude brought in cash flow for all these other craftsmen, all these other artisans as the head of the guild. And so Paul's preaching was a problem for them. And here's why. Because Paul had been going around telling people that idols are gods made by human hands. They were not gods at all. They were not gods to be worshipped. Now, it's not recorded here in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19, but you do see it elsewhere in Paul's preaching. Let me give you two examples. First, in Lystra, in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas show up in Lystra, and God uses Paul as a, as a, as a conduit of his power to heal a, a, a person. And whenever that person gets healed, all the people around are like, the gods have come down to visit us, right? Paul is Hermes and Barnabas is Zeus. They start naming them after their Greco-Roman gods. And Paul and Barnabas, when they hear about this, they're grieved. They rip their clothes and they come out into the streets to address the people. And this is what they say. Man, why are you doing these things? Acts 14, 15. We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In other words, don't worship created things like us. Worship the Creator who brought everything into existence. Or you fast forward into Acts 17 when Paul's in Athens. And we're told when Paul shows up in Athens... Right? He sees that they are very religious people. In fact, they have altars to every god, including an altar to the unknown god, because they're equal opportunity worshipers. They don't want to leave anyone out. And so Paul says, I'm going to take the unknown god that you're worshiping and declare to you the known god, the true god, the one god, the only god. And as a part of that, that declaration, as a part of that engagement with the philosophers in Athens, he says this in Acts 17, 29, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. This shows up in Paul's preaching as it's recorded in the book of Acts. And so even though it's not here in Acts 19, you can imagine this is what Paul's saying in a very idolatrous culture. Don't worship statues. Don't worship idols. Gods made by human hands are not gods at all. And this posed a problem for them. Significant problem for them because people who had responded to Paul's preaching, they quit buying the statues. And when they quit buying the statues, that revenue stream began to dry up for those artisans, for those craftsmen, those who had no little wealth on account of the worship of Artemis. And listen, anytime somebody reaches into your pocketbook, how do you respond? You get a little upset. And they do as well. Listen, notice how they respond in verse 28. We're told that they were enraged. They're inflamed with anger. And so they begin to chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this commotion begins to draw the attention of all the other people in the city. So they're passing by, conducting business. Like, what's going on over there? I don't know. Let's go see. Right? 
crowdsource mobs, right? That's just, it, it, happened to, it happens today, it happened then. Let's, we got like onlooker traffic. On I-30 when there's a wreck, everybody slows down to see, we've got to stop and see what's going on there. And so this is what happened. People are being drawn in constantly into this commotion that's going on in the city, so, that, so much so that some of them don't even know how it erupted or where it even started, what people were writing about. But there's people after people are funneling into this crowd, so much so that they begin to spill into the theater. Now the theater in ancient Athens, historians and archaeologists tell us, it probably sat close to 25,000 people. It was used for plays and theater and productions. It was used for civic assemblies. And it made a great impromptu gathering space for riots. And so the people begin to spill into the theater. Now you can imagine thousands of people, perhaps tens of thousands of people, chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And Paul... You guys remember, I don't know, I grew up watching Sunday morning, Saturday morning cartoons and watched Scooby-Doo as a kid. And Scooby-Doo, right, they always were trying to unmask the villains, but eventually throughout the series, eventually you were introduced to his little nephew, Scrappy. And Scrappy was always coming into every situation, no matter how big the obstacle, no matter how large the villain was, and he would, he'd put up his fist like this and he said, let me at him, let me at him. And Paul, in Ephesus, turns into Scrappy, right? He's like, let me out. Let me go in there. Let me contend with him. Let me talk it out with him. And all the rest of the Christians who were there with him were like, Paul, it's not a good idea, bro, right? It's not going to end well for you. In fact, even some of the Asiarchs, like significant officials in the province of, Roman province of Asia that Paul had befriended through his ministry there, they're sending messages to him, urging him, Paul, don't do it. Don't do it, Paul. And so Paul stays on the sideline in this moment, but he's so passionate about the defense for the gospel that he wants to go in and plead with this mob crowd that is chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, at this point, the Jews, the Jewish leaders in Ephesus decide, we better separate ourselves from these Christians. <laughs> because Jews were not thought fond of by the, by the Romans either. Okay? And so the Jews decide, we've got to send in an advocate. Somebody's going to go in and plead our case. Represent us. So Alexander is the guy that gets chosen. I don't know how they chose him. Maybe they drew straws. Maybe they, he lost paper, rock, scissors, right? He threw down a rock and somebody else goes, paper, it's you. And so Alexander is the one thrust into the limelight. And as he goes in and begins to try and silence the crowd, they recognize he's a Jew. And so what do they do? They chant even louder in one voice for two straight hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Until finally the city clerk, one of the highest ranking city officials comes in and he says, listen, you guys got to shut this thing down. He's, he he just diminishes the influence of Paul and the gospel ministry it had there in Ephesus. He's not really detracting from the worship of Artemis. He says, besides, if you guys have something against him, there are proconsuls, there are courts, there's a system for this. It's not mob justice. You need to work the system. And then he ends up dismissing the people. Paul's been fascinated by that story. How Paul's ministry in this place would have such an impact, such an influence on the people of that city 
of that place that it would begin to undercut the profit that people could make off of the cultural idols of their day. It's always fascinated me. And listen, despite the downplaying by the city clerk, the gospel ministry Paul had in Ephesus and in the larger province, because we're told even the people outside of Ephesus throughout the province of Asia, it had a catalytic impact on them. Now, do you know what a catalyst is? Those of you who remember maybe high school chemistry, some of you haven't gotten to high school chemistry yet, so you'll learn about this eventually. But a catalyst in, in chemistry, in a chemical uh, process, is a catalyst is a substance that increases the rate of change in a chemical reaction without undergoing any permanent change in itself. So in other words, a catalyst is something that brings about change, but is not changed. And listen, the gospel is the most powerful catalyst known to man. It is something that affects massive transformation and change without itself being changed. Because listen, if you change the gospel, then it loses its power to bring about the kind of transformation and change in the lives of people. But if the gospel remains unchanged, that God in His mercy has sent His Son to live in our place and die in our place because we as sinners rebelled against Him. And yet out of His love and kindness and compassion, He would move towards us in Jesus. And Jesus would live the life that we deserved or that we could not live, die the death that we deserved to die, and that God would raise Him from the dead, appoint Him as the one who would return and judge the world. And, by, and, and to verify this, what does Paul say in Acts 17 in that address at the, at the, with the men of Athens? He says God ways validated this. He's raised Him from the dead. And that gospel truth has the power to revolutionize individuals to bring about conversion and when people are truly converted listen they have a change of affections a change of priorities a change of loves a change of loyalties a change of allegiances because they have a new heart in fact that was promised in ezekiel chapter 36 when God promises the new covenant, He says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take out their heart of stone that is cold and indifferent towards me. I'm going to give them a heart of flesh that is responsive towards me, that loves me. And so convert, true conversion brings about a transformation of affections. And a transformation of affections brings about a change of life. You don't believe me? You look at a pastor in the Carolinas by the name of Tony Meridia. He illustrated it this way. He said, listen, you ever seen a young man in his late teens gets a crush on a girl? Some of you fellows in the room, you remember that day? Right? That first, like, head over heels kind of crush. Not like, ah, she's cute, but like, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do without her. <laughs> My life won't have meaning or purpose. Right? You, you know what I'm talking about? That kind of crush. It brings about change in his life, doesn't it? Because all of a sudden, his parents have been asking him for two years to wash the car. But now he washes the car three times a week. It is spotless. His parents have been asking him since he was five to clean his room, but now what does he do? I've got to keep, i got to get things in order. His parents have been asking him since middle school to take a shower. But now he takes a shower and he uses so much Axe body spray that it gags everybody else in the room with him. Right? Right, there's all these changes that begin to come about. Why? Because there's new interests for him. There's new commitments for him. There's new loves 
developing in his heart. There's new affections. There's new priorities. And listen, that happens on a much grander scale when you come to faith in Jesus because conversion brings about change in the individual and through conversions of this person and this person and this person and this person and this person who begin to forsake their ways and embrace the way as it's called in the text of walking with God, of honoring God and loving God because the one that they used to oppose, they're now loyal to. The one that they used to hate, they now love. The one that they used to be indifferent toward, they now have a passion for. And that brings about change in a life after life after life which infects a culture. That's what's going on in Acts 19 through the ministry of Paul in Ephesus. And listen, I just want to say, I long for that kind of gospel witness today in this culture. For the cultural idols of our day to begin to be undermined because there are people who now no longer are in love with themselves, but they're in love with Jesus. But how does that come about? Listen, I want to give you one means by which this comes about. And then four results. No, three results. Yeah, three results. I know you're like, you can't just have three points. You got five, right? You already had one that took you 20 minutes. So we're in trouble. No, I promise we're going to run through these quick. Because we got food to get to afterwards. So, what is the means that God uses to bring about this kind of transformation? It is a people who are committed to teach the word. Who are committed to teach the word. I want you to look in this text. In Acts chapter 19. Look at the emphasis on Paul's extended teaching and preaching ministry in Ephesus. With both Jews and Greeks. You see it mentioned on several occasions. First in verse 8. Where he enters the synagogue. And for three months he spoke boldly and reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So he goes into the synagogue with the Jewish people who are there and he begins to reason with them. He preaches to them about the kingdom of God, about God's rule breaking into human history through his appointed king, Jesus of Nazareth, whom they crucified and killed and God raised from the dead. So he begins to reason with them. He teaches, he preaches in the synagogue until eventually they say, we've heard enough of you. And so Paul takes the disciples who had come to faith in Jesus and he moves on to the hall of Tyrannus. Which in, in Ephesus was likely a place where the philosophers gathered midday to debate ideas. See, here was, here was Paul's ministry everywhere he went. He woke up early in the morning and he made tents from like sunrise to about 11 o'clock in the morning when everyone took a siesta. I don't think they called it that then, okay, because they weren't in Hispanic culture. Uh, but they took a break in the middle of the day and they would go indoors and they would eat and share a meal and they would debate ideas and they would come back out around 4 o'clock and they would work until 9 o'clock in the evening and go to bed and he did the same thing for two years. Working in the morning, debating in midday, going back to work in the evening, coming back in the morning to work, made tents, taught and preached, made tents over and over and over and over again there in the hall of Tyrannus. We're told in Verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And then in verse 20, we're told at the end of that section, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That it had power there with the residents of that province and of that city. 
See, Luke says two things about the word of the Lord. One, it continued to increase. In other words, it spread to person after person after person after person after person. And then he says, second of all, it prevailed mightily. As it came into contact with other worldviews, as it came into contact with other idols, as it came in contact with other religious faiths, it was showing itself to be superior and victorious over them. So it increased from person to person. It prevailed in power as all the other little G gods were replaced by the teaching of the apostles about the work of Jesus, the person of Jesus, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God prevailed. So you know what? A church that is committed to teach the Word, a people that are committed to teach the Word, Here's one of the means by which God brings about this kind of cultural transformation. And listen, oftentimes it doesn't happen in an instant. Oftentimes it happens just like this, over time. Over time. Because when God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, things happen. Look at it. You go all the way back to Genesis. How did God bring everything into existence? He didn't create a nuclear reactor. What did he do? He spoke. He said, let there be. Let there be. Let there be. Over and over again. Let there be and there was. Let there be and there was. Let there be and there was. See, when God speaks, things happen. There's power in the words of God. In fact, we're to, if you move forward into the New Testament, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in a letter written to young Timothy as he pastored the church right there at Ephesus, it says, in all Scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God. It's exhaled by Him. Right? In the same way that God breathes life into our first parents in the garden. As He forms them from the dust of the earth and the rib of the side and He breathes life into them and they come alive. In the same way that He speaks everything into existence in Genesis chapter 1. If the Scriptures are God-inspired, if they are God-expired, then they are powerful. They are powerful. Listen, I've seen this firsthand. I had the opportunity to travel to Russia in 2006 with another local church that I served on staff of at the time and minister with one of our partners there. Part of our ministry, because they were very untrusting of Westerners coming into their churches and teaching about leadership and about uh, ministry. And so one of the things we did during the, we taught, at night we taught, but during the day we went from flat to flat to flat. And that, those were apartments, right? From apartment to apartment to apartment in the city, meeting with their members, sitting down with these folks who grew up un, under the communist rule in Russia and listening to them to tell their stories about how they came to faith in Jesus. And person after person after person said, listen, I just found this old Bible in a trunk somewhere, and I opened it up, and I began to read. And without any commentaries, without any preachers, without any podcast, without any resources, without being able to Google stuff, right? The Lord just illumined the text for them, and it, He quickened them to believe on Christ. He made them alive just by the power of his word the holy spirit took that and said live and they came to life because god's word is powerful it brings us to life and it reorders our life it reorders our life as those who are following jesus 
It's those who love Jesus now. It's those who are loyal to Jesus now. And listen, I want you to know that the church, the capital C church, not just our little C church, but the capital C church, it stands as the only people in the world who are tasked with the proclamation of these words. It's the people of God who are formed by the word of God who are to declare it to the world that God has created. To the people that God has formed in His image. See, there's all kinds of governmental agencies and institutions who do great work in caring for people. There's all kinds of nonprofits that do great work in caring for people's needs. But there is no replacement for a church that is the outpost of the kingdom of God in this world that opens this book week after week after week after week and teaches it and preaches it and proclaims it. And then, like those in Ephesus... God brings life. And He transforms people. He brings them from to life from the dead. They're converted with new affections. Now they have new loves and new loyalties. And then all of a sudden, all of the I used to be's. Right? Any, any I used to be's in here? I'm one of them. Right? All of the I used to be's are now becoming I will be's. As they look forward to the future of all that God's going to do, and that forms them in the present, as they have continual contact with the Word of God. Now it sounds like, man, isn't there something more to it than that? <laughs> like, here's one guy, Paul, goes into a massive city of several hundred thousand people with the Old Testament scrolls and the apostolic witness about Jesus. And he just shows up in the synagogue, starts teaching. They kick him out, and he goes to the hall of Tyrannus, and starts teaching. Making tents and teaching. Making tents and teaching. Making tents. Isn't there more to it than that? Would not seem so from Acts chapter 19. That the word of God is sufficient. It is sufficient and powerful. And it brings about these effects. I'm going to give them to you real quick. There's three of them. First, what happens when the word claim the Spirit is active in a place over time like Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. First of all, God's power is demonstrated. God demonstrates His power through that. Listen, in verses 11 and 12, it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that He had touched had touched His skin were carried away to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now listen, this text is, I think, descriptive of what was going on, not necessarily prescriptive about what every church now should do. You don't start a prayer cloth ministry. Okay? He's not saying everybody needs to go out and take the preacher's sweat rag that he wiped on his forehead that day, put it on eBay for 50 bucks the following week, and begin to sell to people, promising them that they would just buy that sweat rag that has the drops of sweat from that pastor, and they would just pray with that, put it in their Bible, they would cleanse themselves with it, then they'll be healed. It's not what's going on here. In fact, the Word says God was doing extraordinary miracles. Not just ordinary miracles, but extraordinary miracles. Right? That there was something that out of the ordinary that was taking place here. This is describing what took place, not prescribing something for all churches in all places at all times. I know what the televangelists will tell you, but I don't think they have any leg to stand on in this text. Now listen, as the Word is taught in a place over time when the Spirit gives life to people and they're converted, God is demonstrating His power 
Listen, I, I don't know about you. I don't know about you, but don't you, but for me, I long to see fresh demonstrations and manifestations of the power of God in each generation, in each community, in each place, and in each church. As the Word is taught and the Spirit is bringing life. Like, forget the handkerchiefs and aprons. By the way, I don't have any aprons or handkerchiefs. So if you're looking for those, you've got to go somewhere else. But I think the point of that passage is this, that there are times where God shows up in extraordinary ways with extraordinary power in particular places. And I, for one, want to see a fresh manifestation of that in our context. And it probably won't involve handkerchiefs or aprons. But people being healed, people being set free from bondage and slavery and captivity. Second of all, you see people turning from sin. You see believers repenting of old practices that they carried with them into their Christian life. Look in verse 18, it says, Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. I find this pretty interesting as well. Listen, they have a book burning. Now this is not the same as for those of us who remember these days of like CDs and cassettes. Okay, remember the last night of camp? Everybody comes crying all emotional with their Metallica CDs and their two short tapes, right? And they just bring all their rock and rock and rap CDs to the bonfire and they throw them on. Oh, never listen to Metallica again, right? Remember those days? It's not what's going on here, okay? It's not what's happening. Listen, these scrolls that they're burning contain spells and incantations, magical arts. And you know what magic was in the ancient world? It was an attempt to manipulate reality for your own self-interests. An attempt to manipulate reality for your own self-interest through these spells that people would cast, through these incantations that people would repeat. They were trying to manipulate reality for their own self-interests. And they come and they confess and divulge. Listen, we're still trying to control our lives. Yes, we give lip service to Jesus, but we're still trying to control our lives because we've hung on to these practices by which we attempted to do that before we even met Him. And I wonder that in a place and over time, as the Word is taught week after week after week, as you have contact with it day after day after day, how much of some of those practices that used to be a part of our lives, whereby we sought to find an identity for ourselves, whereby we sought to manipulate reality for ourselves based on our own self-interest, would begin to recede as we repent and we trust God with our future. And not our techniques and our strategies and our practices that we once held on to in the past. That we would repent from our own individualistic self-interests. What might that look like in a church? It might look like, even as Steve prayed earlier, people as we say, we need people to serve. People will say, sign me up. I'm ready to lay my life down. If we look for people, say, listen, we've, we're, as we grow, right? You've heard me use the illustration before. There's only so many people that can connect in a singular life group. And we say, we need a new life group. People are like, I'm panting, salivating to help start a new life group in our community. To see people connected to Christ through each other and His Word as we sit around and pray for each other and read the Word of God together and encourage each other and serve together in our community. Why? 
Because I'm laying aside my own self-interest, my attempts at manipulating reality. You're like, I don't have a book of spells. Probably not. If you do, let's talk. But you do have self-interests whereby you're trying to protect and manipulate your own reality. It might also look like a repentance from materialistic pursuits. But you to notice whenever they burn these things, how much they're worth. The text says 50,000 drachmas or pieces of silver, which is a daily wage in their time. So I did a little math. It's scary for me to do math. I'll grant you that. But I did a little math this morning. I used a calculator. So you, <sighs> sigh of relief. Did a little math. And 50,000 pieces of silver, 50,000 drachmas, divided by 365, which is the number of days we would have in a modern calendar year. Right? So you divide that and you get 137 years of wages represented. If you multiply that by just say... $50,000, an annual wage for a starting school teacher in our community. And here's what you have. You have $6,850,000 up in flames. Which tells us something. That these scrolls were incredibly valuable. But what they chose to do with them was destroy them rather than trying to leverage their worth on the open market in order to pad their own bank accounts. Which they could have done. They could have tried to sell them. Like, why would we burn these things? They're worth so much money. We could take that money and we could put it to kingdom purposes. But they recognized, they recognized that no amount of money was worth the undermining of gospel ministry in their community. So they repent of materialistic pursuits. What would it look like for a church that had not its eye on its own self-interest, trying to protect and manipulate its own reality, and had not an eye on the bottom line all the time in their bank accounts of how this decision is going to benefit me financially? But what is right to honor this one who has saved me and serves me with the giving of his own life? People see over time, it may not be in a climactic event, in a power encounter, but it may just be in a truth encounter week after week after week. People begin to turn from sin. And then finally, the name of Jesus is hallowed. The name of Jesus is hallowed. The text says it's extolled. It's praised. They declare its worth and greatness. His glory and majesty is on their lips. And as they hallow the name of Jesus, you know what happens? All of their cultural idols, they begin to get hollowed out. Because as Jesus' name is hallowed among them, then the idols of their culture get hollow. There's no longer any substance there for them. There's no longer any marrow there for them. There's no longer anything to satisfy them because they've been satisfied by one who is greater and more glorious. Let me ask you a question, church. Do we want to see a fresh manifestation of the power of God as His Word is proclaimed and His Spirit is at work and people turning from sin and the name of Jesus being extolled and glorified in this community? 
Listen, if, if what takes place in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 would begin to take place in fate and in the heart of Rockwall County today, you know what would happen through Redeemer Church? What would happen through First Baptist Church fate? What would happen through uh, the Church of Christ, East Ridge Church of Christ up on 549? What would happen through Generations Church down on I-30? Through the capital C Church in fate in the middle of Rockwall County and the other churches in Rockwall County is that you begin to see the cultural idols being undercut. You begin to see culture being reshaped and transformed. Listen, that I would love to see in my lifetime. And I hope you would as well. And that's why we're here. We're not, we, yes, we are here to provide a place for families to connect, for their children to be nurtured in the fear and admonition of the Lord, for them to be trained and taught. But we're not just here to provide a safe enclave for all the Christians to come together where we can just kind of have our little club and meet together in a comfortable air-conditioned building on Sunday morning that has fans that would circulate the air as well. But as an outpost of kingdom culture and that we as a church will be the lead repenters in our community, turning from sins in our past, turning from practices that we need to leave behind to put our feet on the path of Jesus and following Him day after day, day after day, day after day, and seeing His Word reorient and reorder our lives as His Spirit takes it and begins doing work in us that we could not do ourselves. That's what I long for. I hope you do as well. Let's pray to that end. Father, this morning... We acknowledge, we acknowledge that our only hope in life or in death, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, is your Son. That we belong to you in life and in death. And Father, for those who are Christians in the room this morning, I pray I pray that you would help us to see those areas of our own lives in which we, like those Ephesian believers, have become disciples. We've put our feet on the path of following your son, but there's still practices in our lives that we're holding on to from the days before we knew him. Father, for some, it might be the exaltation of self through gossip. For others, they might be seeking satisfaction through pornography. Still for others, it might be the pursuit of money and material possessions. And still for others, it might be a lack of willingness to lay aside their own self-interest to serve the body. Father, I pray that you help us to lay those things aside, those things that the author of Hebrews says are like shackles around our feet that would so easily entangle us and keep us from running well this race that you've set before us. 
And as you bring about that renewal in the context of our church, Father, may that spill over into this community. And may there be revival. May we see a fresh demonstration of your power in this city. May we see conversions of people crossing the line of faith and going from death to life. May we be like Paul, just a scrappy dude who just who wants to contend for the gospel in his generation. But ultimately, may our aim be to see the renewal of a place through the conversion of people as Jesus is held high among us, as He is hallowed, extolled, and given praise. That He be magnified and seen for who He is among these people, among this church. And we pray it in His name. Amen.